I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 33, we read Restoring the Lost Constitution by Randy Barnett from 2004. Randy Barnett was born in 1952 in Chicago, Illinois. He attended Northwestern University and graduated with a BA in 1974. He then studied law at Harvard Law School, graduating with a JD in 1977. After law school, Barnett returned to Chicago and worked as an Illinois state prosecutor in Chicago, trying felony cases. He spent the 1981-82 academic year as a research fellow at the University of Chicago Law School, and then in fall of 82 began his academic career as an assistant professor of law at the Chicago-Kent School of Law. After 10 years there, Barnett was hired as a professor of law at Boston University's law school. In 2004, he argued the medical marijuana and federalism case of Gonzalez v. Rach before the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2006, Barnett le- left Boston and began teaching at Georgetown University Law Center, where he remains today. He's written 12 books, including Restoring the Lost Constitution in 2004, which we'll discuss today. So Randy Barnett was actually at Georgetown while I was there, and I never took him as a uh, took his class and and we were talking beforehand. I can't remember why. So that's kind of a bummer and a missed opportunity. Anyway, he tells, uh, he tar- starts the book with a story of basically how he started to learn about constitutional law in law school and got pretty uh, disenchanted by what he found out, which is basically that the constitution is, you know, is written, there's a text and, you know, we would all assume that that's what, you know, constitutional law should be based on a clear interpretation of the text. But what we find out is, you know, over the over 200 years, the Supreme Court has tweaked it through their own um, judicial interpretation. And for listeners, you know, I would suggest definitely go back and if you haven't already, go back and listen to our uh, Antonin Scalia episode just to talk about the different judicial philosophies and, and how, you know, particularly those on those liberal justices on the left are perfectly happy expanding the text or changing it or twisting it in a way that suits their uh, outcomes based uh, purposes. And so, you know, Randy Barnett saw that in law school and was pretty disappointed. He says, According to the Supreme Court, Congress can restrict the liberties of the people pretty much any way it wished, unless a law violated an express prohibition in the Constitution. So even a right such as the Second Amendment, right of right to bear arms, could, he says, could effectively be read out of the Constitution if the Supreme Court disapproved. Of course, this is a an active conversation because mm-hmm. plenty of, plenty of folks in the journalistic crowd would love to just completely eliminate the Second Amendment if they could. And so he found, he says, the idea of protecting liberty by imposing written constraints on the government was an experiment that obviously failed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that was his attitude about constitutional law. You know, so he says, had judges done their job, this book here that he had written wouldn't need to be written. Courts have basically eliminated 
any clause, all the clauses that uh, interfered with the exercise of government power. And so while he says the Constitution creates islands of government powers in a sea of liberty, an absolute sea of liberty for uh, for American citizens, the, the judiciary led by the Supreme Court has redacted the Constitution so much that now it's more like a sea of government power with a few islands of liberty here and there. So he, he uses this to kind of jump off and say, I think that the way that the Congress or that the Supreme Court has interpreted the, the Constitution has been so very wrong in a number of places. And that's kind of the preface of the book. Yeah, and I think it's a that's it's an experience that is not unique to to Barnett. I think a lot of conservatives when they go to law school have this kind of reaction. And originalism, which is the sort of philosophy that Scalia and Barnett and many other conservative legal scholars uh, endorse the idea that the constitution means what it says, basically, uh, that seems obvious, right? I mean, that's like, yeah. and I think we discussed it in the Scalia episode, which, yeah, we, there's similar themes here. Why, why wouldn't it? I mean, that's, that's how every other writing is ever interpreted. You know, I mean, you don't, right. you don't read a, any other set of instructions or rules or anything else and say, well, it doesn't really mean that, or we can ignore that part or, you know, people mm-hmm. can, people can ignore rules, but to pretend that they don't exist, even when they're right there is unique to constitutional practice. It's, it's a very, well, it's results driven. Of course, like you said, I mean, judges and politicians over the years have wanted it to change, but unable to change it and found a way just to ignore it. And often that, just goes unchallenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Barnett says all that, and then he and then he sort of really begins at the beginning of, okay, we have this constitution, and if we're going to say everyone is bound by its original terms and its original public understanding, what, what, what is it about this document that binds us? Since none of us here actually, you know, consented to the thing, you know, and that's that's kind of a a philosophical question, but it, it does matter. You know, I mean, we don't normally think, well, why are, why are laws laws? You know, I mean, well, they they got passed, you know, they, they followed the rules of passing laws or constitutions and here they are. And we all agreed to live under it. And we have ever since. Well, and let's put a fine point on it and make it explicit to say that, you know, he's, he, his main question is what does it mean to consent? And mm-hmm. kind of like, well, that we live here. So he goes through all these different scenarios of answers to that question of, well, we vote. So does that show that we consent? You know, we, we stay in America without moving. So does that show that we consent? In other words, you and I and all of our listeners were not present at the creation of the constitution. You know, we weren't, we didn't step out of the state of nature together with uh, um, this major agreement that this is how we would govern one another. And so these restrictions on our inalienable rights, how do we, how do we even know that we consented that we agree to them in the first place? Yeah. And that's, 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 I mean, we talk about consent of the governed. That's a kind of a bedrock of law. You know, I mean, we, when we look at foreign regimes that are ruled by dictators who took over in coups, we say, well, that's not a legitimate government because they're not, the people never consented to be governed that way. You know, this is just a strong man with with an army. And Barnett's sort of turning that at us and say, we, like you said, we never consented to this constitution. So yeah, he says, you know, by voting, is that a, is that a way we consent? 
They said, well, you know, we don't always vote for the thing that ends up happening. And there's a lot of people who don't vote. And that even in, in the Constitution's early days, especially, there were a lot of people who could not vote, who now could if they were alive today. So, I mean, voting, it shows you're participating in government, but it's not really the same as consent. Mm-hmm. And also he goes, you know, by living here, like, well, if it was easy to just hop from one jurisdiction to another, you know, if you could just like uncheck constitution and check, you know, Canadian constitution or whatever, that would be a way of saying, well, yeah, you did. It's, it's so easy to leave. You didn't leave. You must like it. You must consent. But you know, it's, it's hard to move within the country. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot that goes on in moving. So to say, well, you, just, you didn't just pick a new country to move to, so you must consent to this constitution. And, it, and that's not, it's not, not only is that not really practical, but it also, he says it kind of like begs the question, you know, if a government saying, if you stay here, it means you consent. Well, mm-hmm. the fact that they say that presumes that they have the authority to say that, which kind of gets ahead, yeah, sure. you know, it, 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 it's circular. And then he also, you know, he goes through a few other things, you know, by, by declining to revolt. Well, sure. I mean, if we did revolt, that would say, okay, we're clearly not happy with this government, but by not revolting, it doesn't mean the opposite. You know, not everyone who's not an active violent revolutionary hasn't, it doesn't mean that they fully accepted everything that's going on. It's just, you know, there are a lot of people who are unhappy with things and have not yet taken up arms against the government. That would be kind of a drastic thing to demand of people to show their consent. And it goes through a few others. Um, but really it gets to the point is there's no, there's no system that really suggests we, every single person governed by our laws has explicitly consented to those laws. Mm -hmm. That kind of goes into, you know, we talk about the government is the people and, you know, we, the people do this and that's true. The people are represented in our government at various different levels and, and branches. But that representation alone isn't permission for them to do anything because it's not the explicit consent in the way that, like he brings up uh, an example of a, a town that his parents live in in Florida, which is one of those 55 and older communities with the sort of uh, homeowners association restrictive agreements about how you, you know, how you can decorate your property, what you can build on your property. And, you know, it's very tight because they want to keep it a certain way uh, with no kids, no no mischief. And there's a lot of towns like this, especially in Florida and Arizona and whatnot. But everybody who moved in there consented to that. You know, when you buy, that's part of the deed, you know, that's part. So Mm -hmm. Barnett's saying, well, here we have unanimous consent. Everybody in this town consented when they took that, when they bought that property to be bound by these fairly restrictive rules, they all like it. They all volunteered to give up those rights. And that is unanimous consent. So that's, that's a system where you could say, okay, this, this agreement takes away some of your inherent property rights, but everyone here agreed to it. So it's okay. It's not really, it's not infringing anything unnaturally or illegitimately. Mm Mm-hmm. You can't really have that in a big country, especially one that's been going for a while where people were just born here. They didn't choose it. It is what it is. And so he, you know, he goes off on that and, you know, what does it mean then? What does it mean that for the people to be sovereign? Yeah, so this is how he sets the table to make his, uh, his 
his most potent argument in the book, which is that if we have less consent, then we need more freedom. And this is how he sets the table to make an argument that the constitution is a, is a document that really opens, clears the way for more freedom, not less. And it's kind of the Supreme court that is, has narrowed those in a lot of ways. But so he says for consent to matter, we must assume that first comes rights, then comes government. And of course, this is the, this is more of the Lockean view of the world is that you own these inalienable background rights, natural rights. And by entering into the, or leaving the state of nature and entering into government, you retain those, although there is now some limits because you have to uh, agree with those around you. So he says a law is just if the restrictions are number one, necessary to protect the rights of others or two proper insofar as they do not violate the pre-existing rights of the persons on whom they are imposed. Sorry, I said, or it's an and Mm -hmm. so necessary to protect the rights of others proper in that they don't violate the pre-existing inalienable rights. So while the protection protection of rights is not the only function performed by government, he says is the only function that justifies restricting personal freedom in the absence of the actual consent of the individual. So he sets the table with this uh, argument about have we or have we not consented to the Constitution. He concludes that we have not, and that doesn't make the Constitution illegitimate. Instead, what he'll say is the Constitution is legitimate, but it's, and it's, but it's legitimate, in, and all of the interpretations thereof, they are legitimate insofar as they're necessary to protect the rights of others and they don't violate our pre-existing rights. So without actual consent, he's making the argument that liberty must be strictly protected. And again, he's a libertarian uh, legal scholar, which uh, in the past, you know, libertarian, we've all we've more or less always viewed as a variation of conservative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, these days it's a, I would say it's actually more a variation of uh, a Trump hating, you know, middle of the way. Um, but, uh, but so libertarian, they, they have a very expansive view of rights and that is kind of the main preoccupation that they have. So for his, his bottom line is every freedom restricting law must be scrutinized to see if it is necessary to protect the rights of others without improperly violating the rights of those whose freedom is being restricted we're talking about these inalienable rights of property. He would say freedom of contract, self-defense, he says restitution. But he would also be very expansive in saying anything that you do in your own house by yourself is 100% your own business. You know, your ability to, well, freedom of contract, which we won't get into, but it has a, a long history in constitutional law. Mm-hmm. You used, used to have a, a unrestricted freedom of contract. Uh, but then uh, the New Deal era Supreme Court uh, overturned that. So more free liberty for him means allowing people to do whatever they want on their own terms and on their own property with their own stuff anytime they want, just so long as it doesn't impinge on the rights of others. So it's it's very much uh, it's very much in line with the the original sort of Lockean view of leaving the state of nature to form government. I, yeah, I think it's kind of an elegant argument too, because it, it takes a flaw, turns it into a good, you know, he says, 
There are not one but two sources of binding laws, laws that are produced by unanimous consent regimes and laws produced by regimes whose legitimacy rests solely on their procedural assurances that the rights of non-consenting persons on whom they're imposed have been protected. So he looks at this, yeah, I mean, going through this thought experiment of did we consent to this you know, law that governs all of us and finding that the answer is no, that's, for a lot of democratic theories, that's a problem. You know, Whoa, right, wait, right. Then we do we have laws? Do we have to obey laws? What does that mean? And he takes that and kind of turns it into a, a benefit. It says, oh, no, you can still have it. But now it means that these natural rights that we all, that we possess have to be protected. So, you know, these rare and small unanimous consent regimes that he talks about are, can often be more detrimental to a person's liberty, which seems like the opposite. You know, you figure everyone agrees to it. It's going to mm-hmm. be more respective of the people. But it doesn't have to be because they might all agree to be bound in some way. But um, now he takes this non-consent regime, which is basically every country on earth, and says, all right, you can have these. right? We, I mean, uh, obviously we have them. Um, but it means you've got to carve out those natural rights that people really need to consent if they're going to be taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, I, I found it a very elegant proof and, and, um, something I, I think most of us don't consider that, you know, nature of consent that deeply when we're thinking about the constitution, but it, it, I think it's a worthy thought experiment that comes up with a result that certainly makes sense to me. Yes. And so it, it builds this argument against the judicial interpretation, the uh, Supreme court interpretation of the constitution. that sort of starts to limit these rights because he's, He's making the case that there's only consent if the Constitution provides, he says, sufficient procedural assurances to protect rights, your natural inalienable rights. And if it's not doing that, then it actually isn't legitimate anymore. And so Supreme Court, by by limiting all of the protections in the Constitution, what you're doing is delegitimizing it. And I mean, I think that's a pretty powerful punch in the nose, too, because mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you're talking about the the most sacred document, even if they've screwed it up a little bit. But but he's, yeah, like you say, a very elegant um, proof that he's make, he's building a pretty strong argument to say the Constitution has value in so much as it protects these rights. And if it doesn't protect the rights, if you've if you have manhandled it in such a way as to as to reduce our protections, then really what you're doing is delegitimizing the Constitution. And for just to make this explicit. So you mentioned natural rights and, and, you know, he, he's, he's very clear that he means something different than natural law or natural right. Like we talked about in the Leo Strauss episode, that's a different thing. Right. Uh, similar related, but not the same natural rights are basically in our John Locke episode, which I encourage everyone to listen to. If you haven't, you hold all of these rights basically unrestricted rights, um, as a, as a human being. And, you know, you leave the state of nature in order to protect your property. And by leaving the state of nature, you agree to form government and the government is there to protect your, your rights and to protect one another from, from harm, from theft, from, from the violation of uh, your person. And when you surrender those rights, government assumes this positive obligation to protect protect your rights, protect the unsurrendered rights, you know, property, freedom of contracts we went through. 
And together, he says, these abstract natural rights defined a boundary within which people should be free to make choices. And so those specific choices, those are the more particular rights or liberties, maybe not inalienable, but there still are rights that we retain. So he uses an example of, I have the right to read a book on my property. I have a right to drive my own car, you know, use my property as I will. You know, I have, I have the right to, you know, invite people over to my house and to speak uh, openly, you know, in my, in my own space. And, and so the role of government, particularly the federal government is to protect that sphere wherein, you know, you can act autonomously just so long as you're not violating anyone else's pre-existing rights. Yeah. And he goes into a very Lockean interpretation of the constitution, but also shows why that's appropriate because the founding fathers themselves were all heavily influenced by Locke and his second treatise on government, which like Corey said, we discussed last season. So when we get down to what are these rights, it's always hard to define, right? And, but that that's not a new observation, you know, in the 21st century. It was hard to define in the 18th century too because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons they didn't have a Bill of Rights in the original Constitution is a lot of the Founding Fathers thought, well, if we list 10 or 20 rights, then the people are going to say those are the rights that the government protects. Everything else, they can infringe. So mm-hmm. instead they said, well, we've got this very limited federal government. So we'll just make it that it can't do anything except what we say in this document. And that'll do the same thing, right? The, because it doesn't have the power to violate these rights and it won't. Well, we, I mean, we've seen that that doesn't work out, but the point of, you know, making a list seems to exclude things that are not on the list, which is pretty common. It's a common way of looking at things. It's also a canon of interpretation. And in, when you're looking at legislation, you know, we list eight things and say these are rights. It's not unreasonable to say, well, something's not on the list. It must not be a right. So that's one of the reasons they wrote the Ninth Amendment to the Bill of, in the Bill of Rights, which says that just because we don't list something here doesn't mean it's, you know, not a right. It's still reserved to the people. But that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments tend to get pretty thoroughly ignored in the years that follow. And I mean, in this day, trying to claim protection of a right that's not explicitly listed in the first eight amendments is very difficult. And there, I mean, there've been some, some that are successful. I mean, there's a, I think there was a right to travel case in the fifties that sort of leans on the ninth amendment, if I remember it right, but it's not, uh, it's not common to be able to exercise those, those rights or to be able to claim them in court. The sort of like just basic, living your life rights, the things that he, uh, he quotes Locke's calling them the liberty of innocent delights, which uh, Barnett says is kind of equivalent to that pursuit of happiness that gets mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, like all of this is just, you know, basic stuff. Do what you want in your own house. You're not hurting anybody. You know, you have the right to be left alone in those pursuits. You know, to read what you want, talk about what you want, mm-hmm. watch what you want, hang out with whom you want, you know, and those rights the founding fathers would have all recognized under this Lockean framework. And that, um, but the courts in the time since then have sort of ruled out the idea that those are constitutionally protected. Like people say, there's no right to privacy in the constitution. And yeah, the word privacy is not in there, but I think 
Barnett might say that certain elements of privacy are definitely in there, in that unenumerated rights that are recognized in the Ninth Amendment. It's, it's just hard to prove because, because they're not written down. I mean, the founding father wrote down the ones they thought most likely they get infringed. You know, things that had recently been infringed in England or in Europe uh, or in the colonies themselves. Since then, we found new things to infringe, and they're not all listed there. So it's it gets mm. it gets complicated. Well, and that's the most prominent example is a right to privacy, and then also a right to abortion. Right? Is those those rights that are not specifically enumerated, but the Supreme Court uses well the penumbras, which basically that's penumbra means like the little shadows in the in the Bill of Rights, and leans heavily on the Ninth Amendment. So it it does tug a little both ways, particularly if you're conservative, because mm-hmm. the Ninth Amendment is pretty open-ended and kind of a black hole. So does that mean you can just keep pulling things out of it? On the one hand, you and I would agree, yeah, more rights, better. But then, you know, quickly it becomes, do we really have a constitutional right to abortion? Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, you can. I mean, should you have a right to abortion? That's a different question. But is there a constitutional right to it? Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the, the the Ninth Amendment really, you know, poses some some risk. And he quotes uh, uh, Judge uh, Bork um, and go back and listen to our Bork episode too. <laughs> I'll plug there. Um, but he quotes uh, Judge Bork saying, "It's uh, the Ninth Amendment is kind of like you have." He says is the equivalent of you have the right to, and then a big ink blot <laughs> and what's underneath the ink blot. You know, it's, it's up to your imagination. So Randy Barnett is going to make a strong argument for a very expansive reading of the ninth amendment because he wants more and more rights. And I think I would tend to agree, except that, you know, there is some risk there. There is, it could open Pandora's box to just really remaking the constitution, I think. Yeah. Pandora's box was, I was just going to say that. I mean, it's, you can imagine, I mean, we've got a lot of different interest groups with a lot of clever lawyers and they could come up with all sorts of crazy things that now the government can't regulate. And maybe Barnett would say, okay, that just means the government can't stop you. It doesn't mean it, you know, it's not requiring you to accept it as a good idea. It's just saying, well, let's limit the government. But yes, you get into a case like abortion where you say, well, that's, I think most conservatives would say that is our business. You know, I mean, people are being killed. So it's dangerous for sure. I think a more explicit Ninth Amendment, one that was stronger, I think there'd be more good than harm, but there there would probably be some harm in that. It's it's It introduces danger. For sure. So... I feel satisfied with the conversation of rights. He also has a, a long conversation about the commerce power in the Constitution. And this one is this is the issue that really speaks to me, because when I was in law school, I found it to be pretty outrageous what uh, what the Supreme Court had, how it ripped a hole in the Constitution with the commerce power. So the commerce power is the Constitution says that Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. And kind of the genesis of this is that under the Articles of Confederation, there wasn't a, a commerce power specifically mentioned. And you just had the problem of states treating one another like separate countries where you had tariffs and, you know, just barriers to, to free trade. And that's problematic. It's one thing to uh, slap tariffs on China, 
it's very different to slap tariffs on Nevada. And of course, you know, in the, the colonial era, the states really traded with one another and then and then with Europe. And if, if you have to have some non-tariff barrier or pay a tariff every time you're moving your tobacco from North Carolina to, you know, Maryland, that's a problem. So we needed a commerce power. So the constitution specifies like, hey, you guys can't do this to each other, states. Instead, Congress has the power to regulate com- commerce. And what we're talking about is economic activity across state lines. Barnett says he, he goes through a very long history of the meaning of commerce, how it was understood at the time, how it was understood for 200 years you know, of pre-Constitution America, colonial America. And he says the historical evidence overwhelmingly supports a narrow original meaning of Congress's power to regulate commerce. As written, any activity that is not being done for profit or gain is completely untouched by Congress's power to regulate commerce among the states. That was the understanding at the time. So how does that cash out? Well, it means mere possession of an item. That's not commerce. Because I I have this pen that I'm holding in my hand, the pen is not in commerce. Maybe it was at one point, but it's not now. Another one would be like the transmission of information, which would be really interesting with today's, you know, com- you know, computer mm-hmm. and internet. Uh, so the transfer of goods for no profit or gain would be the same thing. Like I, I give somebody something, particularly intrastate, you know, you come to visit me here in Virginia and I give you a sandwich. That is not a, an economic transaction. You know, that's, that's not economic activity. And we're, we're contrasting that to a very expansive reading that the Supreme Court has created for the, for the Commerce Clause. So really quickly, let's go through this, this little case, uh, Wickard v. Filburn. This is kind of the seminal case when it comes to expanding the power of Congress under the Commerce Clause. Wickard v. Filburn was a case where uh, the Supreme Court found that Congress had the power to regulate the production and consumption of wheat grown by a farmer used to feed his own family and his own his own livestock. So what we had here was a farmer who was growing wheat, feeding it to his own animals and to his own family. And Congress said that they could regulate that and stop him from growing it or regulate uh, how much he was growing it because at the time these are Congress had imposed these uh, New Deal price controls and production limits on on wheat and other commodities and what they're saying is like yeah even this guy he can't do it either you know mm-hmm. uh, but and he says my wheat is not entering into commerce this is not economic activity I'm not selling it even to my neighbors let alone across state lines in fact I'm eating it myself in my own cows are going to eat it. And the Supreme Court says, well, no, that still counts because their rationale was this uh, this new uh, doctrine called the aggregate effects. And under the aggregate effects doctrine, any activity that affects commerce among the states, though it may be wholly intrastate and completely non-commercial, completely non-economic, it, it falls under the Commerce Clause. And what do we mean by that? Well, even though this farmer was growing wheat and eating it himself and giving it to his own animals, 
Well, if the whole country did that, that would absolutely affect, in the aggregate, it would affect the price of wheat nationally. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we can regulate what this guy does on his own property to feed his own cows. I, I remember reading that in law school and just being completely outraged. I, I had <laughs> the same reaction. Sick. It's, it, seems, it's, it seems like a purpose. It's willfully blind. I mean, there's no way you could actually say that this is commerce, growing a plant on your own property and consuming it. And that's kind of, I, that I, I imagine is why, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, Barnett argued the case of Gonzalez v. Rich, which was that same argument, uh, except as concerns drugs. You know, so we yeah, have these federal yeah. drug laws where which are under the Commerce Clause. That's how Congress justifies, sure. you know, banning the sale or consumption of marijuana. And these people in California were, were saying, well, look, I, I grew it in my backyard and I smoked it. And, you know, maybe California can ban that because the states have more expansive powers. But how can the federal government ban that? There's no commerce here. There's no interstate activity here. There's no interproperty activity here. It's happening right here, you know, in my house. Mm-hmm. How's that commerce? You know, and Justice Thomas goes on about this a lot. He was in the minority in Gonzalez, which, which you should not surprise you to learn that federal drug laws are still in force. The, the, Barnett didn't win that argument, but it was 5-4, I believe, because I think people are starting to recognize how ridiculous the Wickard reasoning is. I mean, Wickard v. Filburn is, is lawless, basically. It's just saying anything that affects anything. I mean, everything affects everything, right? I mean, you know, it, yeah. we all live in a country. Everything has, or at least has the possibility of affecting everything, which I think was more the holding. It wasn't even that they, the government had to show that Wickard's consumption of his own wheat was actually affecting the wheat market in his state or his or the country as a whole. It was just that it could, you know, or like you said, if everyone did it, then it could. And that it raises a lot of questions. Like if that's really what that means, then why did Congress put interest, you know, Congress, why did the uh, constitutional convention, why did the writers there put commerce among the states? Mm-hmm. Because basically what, what, what the court said in Wickard is all commerce, you know? Yeah. Then why would they, why would, you know, the fact that it's limited in the constitution suggests that their, the original intent was to, uh, limit some, to regulate something different than all commerce, which is this subset of commerce that wasn't working quite right in the days before the constitution. Mm-hmm. Barnett also makes a good point about the word regulate, which you hear this a lot in second amendment discussions too. Well, a well-regulated militia, people say, or, you know, and it's the same thing here, you know, Congress can regulate. No, he, he, he talks about how in the 18th century definition of regulate is basically to make regular. doesn't mean to ban it. doesn't mean, you know, to force it into a pattern that is more, you know, approved of by the government. He compares it, I think, more to like a, like how when you sell property, you've got to file a deed. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't restrict your right to own property. What does it do? It, it, it gives us a register of the property so that anybody who wants to know who owns this can look it up at the county courthouse. And that's important. And otherwise, people would say, no, I own it. I mean, I, somebody sold it to me. I have a document here. You know, mm-hmm. there, there would be disputes. There sometimes are disputes, even with this. But, you know, that's a system of taking these natural rights and, and regularizing them 
so that everyone can exercise them without bumping up against each other and having constant disagreements about what it is and where the line is. That sort of regulation is mm-hmm. one thing. You know, it's like saying, okay, you can sell wheat between the states, but it's got to actually be wheat. You got to, you know, you can't sell barley and call it wheat. Like that would be a reasonable regulation because it's just saying, yeah, tell people what it is. That way everybody is, is on the same page. We all know what we're saying here. But to say, you can't sell but this much. You can't produce but this much. You can't even produce and consume it yourself unless it falls under these regulations from this bureau in Washington that's writing regs right now. That's crazy. And that's definitely not what regulate ever meant to the people who wrote the Constitution. Yeah. And just to clarify, you're going through this definition of regulation because what we're telling listeners is this is how Congress and the federal government has the right to create regulations in the first place. I mean, Congress will pass a law that's has plenty of holes in it and then pass it on to the agency to go ahead and fill in the details of law, passing actual laws, regulatory rules. This is where the administrative state could even become possible because when you're the plain reading of the commerce clause would mean that if I buy a hamburger from McDonald's in my neighborhood, that's not interstate commerce because it was sold to me in my neighborhood, in my own state. So under the plain reading of the Constitution, you know, we're only talking about interstate transactions, economic activity. So that if I, you know, maybe I bought something on Amazon that's actually, that's one of the books I'm buying from Florida. And so it has to be shipped here or something like that. So across the state lines versus going to the grocery store and buying some bread, like that's not an actual interstate commerce transaction. Right. Now, Much your grocery less. store might have been involved in interstate commerce when they brought in the product. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. but you aren't. And that's, I think that that distinction has been washed away. You know, the idea that like if, if you buy an orange from the Harris Teeter, that's Congress would say, oh, that's interstate commerce. And a lot of the courts would say, well, sure it is. Right. It's from Florida yeah. or California or something. But it's not to you. You know, I mean, when when the supermarket brought it up from there on the truck, that's interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. When you buy it and bring it home from someplace in the town or the next town, that's that's all happening within the state. And that yeah. that that distinction's just totally been wiped away. And that that makes the distinction meaningless because everything touches something in another state. We're an interconnected people. I mean, even more so now than we were, but even in the old days, I mean, things were interconnected. Materials might come from different places. So it's just it's yeah, and they blew that distinction away with a bazooka. So mm-hmm. it's not even like we're saying, well, yeah, McDonald's got that, got the the hamburger bun interstate, and then you bought it intrastate, you know, here. But we're still going to regulate it because ultimately it's it's economic activity. That's even that would be shady, but that is at least on the margin defensible. What the court has done with Wickard, and you know, since then is just completely obliterate it by saying now we're not even worried about that in fact if anything could ever be done at all that has any effect on interstate commerce at any level of theory that is now a interstate transaction uh interstate uh, uh activity that falls under the commerce clause and it's just it's crazy and so then they added another one called the 
a, a new doctrine, another doctrine, uh, Articles of Commerce doctrine, uh, under which Congress has power to regulate any activity that makes use of any product that once traveled in interstate commerce. So it's not just, hey, this guy's growing wheat that theoretically at the aggregate level could affect the price of wheat. But now we're saying like anything that once traveled, including my table once traveled in interstate commerce at one time, well, that also can be regulated. So now there is absolutely nothing left that can't, can't be regulated. Uh, and so he says, under this doctrine, Congress claims power to criminalize any conduct involving a credit card, a computer, a telephone. You know, so between ag- the aggregates doctrine, the Wicker doctrine, and this Articles of Commerce doctrine, Congress, he says, has plenary power to legislate in any manner it wishes. And in other words, it's a new power that was completely created by the Supreme Court. So, and the the only sort of step back, pull back from that was in the U.S. v. Lopez case in 1995. This was under the, the Rehnquist Court. This case arose from this high school student challenged the, the uh, congressional legislation called the Gun-Free School Zone Act in 1990. And this law banned possession of handguns near schools. And uh, in, the, in the majority, Rehnquist held that Although Congress does have broad commerce clause power, basically because the Supreme Court created it, that power did not extend to the regulation of the carrying of handguns. So uh, Rehnquist, he said that Congress could regulate under the commerce clause if that it could it could regulate the channels of internet interstate commerce, the instrumentalities, persons or things in interstate commerce that have traveled. And activities that substantially affect, that's the aggregate effects. If it substantially affects or substantially relates at least to interstate commerce. And what we're saying here is this law of gun-free school zone, where is any economic transaction at all? We're not saying that the law isn't a good idea, you know, that it's, that it's not needed. But it needs to be a state law, not a federal law, to say that you can't have a gun with you in a, anywhere near a school zone. Okay, that law is a good idea, and I support it. I vote for it. Okay, great. But the question is, does Congress have authority to regulate that under the Commerce Clause? Because it doesn't have any other authority. There's no other authority that Congress has under the Constitution to regulate something like that, to have a handgun with you by a school. And so the Rehnquist Court did peel that back, pulled it back just a little bit. In the dissent, though, you had Justice Breyer saying Congress could regulate handgun possession under the Commerce Clause because gun violence, gun violence, could have a significant effect on interstate commerce by impairing educational environments. <laughs> it's just like the level of absurdity. I mean, you just say, hey, look, yeah, this is just crazy, but this is the outcome I want. Mm-hmm. This is the result I want. So I'm just going to vote for it say it's okay. <laughs> I, I think these, these cases, this, this one and, and uh, there was another one around the same time, U.S. v. Morrison, that just shows that Congress isn't even thinking about this anymore. They've just assumed, oh, it's they're, automatic, yeah. they just assumed they're a government of, of general powers and they can ban anything. And if something's bad, like having, you know, people shooting near schools, we all agree 
shouldn't be shooting guns near schools. I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty universal across the political spectrum that that's a bad idea. So some congressman says, well, let's ban it. And it doesn't occur to them even, or maybe it occurs to some of them and they ignore it because they want credit for doing a good thing. But I think some of them, it doesn't even occur to them to say, uh, do we have the power to do this? I mean, isn't that something that isn't criminal law typically something states do unless it's, you know, there's some specific federal connection like it is happening in Washington, D.C., or it's happening in a federal office building or an Indian reservation or a Navy base or something. You know, this is just out there in the in the states. Can we even do this? And I don't think anyone's really asking that. And the other case was the uh, in Morrison, it was about the Violence Against Women Act. Mm-hmm. Now, who's going to vote against the Violence Against Women Act, right? I mean, you don't want that campaign ad. This guy likes violence against women. Oh, you know, but it, you know, most crimes of violence are not federal crimes because that's not what the federal constitution was meant to do. The states already had that under control. States were perfectly capable and always have been of passing criminal laws and, you know, regulating where you can carry a gun or, you know, punishing people who do violence against each other has been going on since before there's a constitution. The founding fathers, I don't think ever considered that the federal government would want to regulate or ban these things because they were already banned. You know, murder was already a crime in every state, you know, so right. was, a, so right. was battery. So was rape and arson and burglary and all these, the ancient common law crimes. Mm-hmm. But so much has this distinction about interstate commerce been obliterated that Congress thinks they just mention that and they say, okay, well now we can do what we want. Now we can, criminal law in the States, there's no buying and selling here. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. And it, I mean, this was Lopez was a five, four opinion, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's it. It was almost the law of the land that the possibility of violence near a school is considered interstate commerce or a close enough to it that Congress can regulate it. That's crazy. Yet here we are. And so listeners, you might be saying, well, what are these guys trying to say that, that Congress shouldn't, you know, regulate guns and that they shouldn't, uh, you know, have a, a, you know, a, a prohibition on murder. Yeah. Well, what we're saying is all those things should be laws. You know, we agree that those are all good laws, but they should happen at the state level. And why does it matter? Well, because the, the distinction between States has been, completely annihilated and you know it is a conservative tenant you know federalism localizing power localizing authority that's the way to build you know your own communities that's the way to you know create the the laboratories of democracy i mean i i believe and i think many many conservatives believe that bringing power down to the lowest level possible that that's a positive it's good for society it's, it's good for the functioning democracy. And with the, this expanse, uh, expansion of the Commerce Clause, what we're doing is we're just pushing more and more power up so that you know, Congress and even more so federal agencies have so much power, so much more than the founders ever intended. And it's detrimental. I mean, I think it would be much better if states were to decide their own abortion laws or their own gun laws, mm-hmm. you know, let states decide 
how to how to punish violence against women. It the state should punish violence against women, and all states do punish violence against women. But that that should be handled at the state level, at the lowest possible level. I think that's better for democracy. I think it's better for for the the long term. And I, and and you know I think today it's even more pronounced than even it was when it, when you know 15 years ago when Randy Barnett wrote this i mean it's even more pronounced today that there's such a focus and a reliance on what happens in washington where we would all be much better off if if we worried about what was happening in our uh, state capitals and then we'd have more access to affect it when washington dc 2000 miles away you know, out of the reach of most, most people, they'll never even visit there. You know, it's really hard to have any influence at all in the way your society is governed. It's much different if you can bring it down to the lower level. hundred percent agree. Cause when you, when you're, when every rule comes down from, from Washington, I mean, it makes you feel like you're really not governing yourself anymore. You know I mean? I, for the obvious crimes, like the ones we're talking about here, Every state's going to ban them. It's not like there's a there's no need to bring this up to the higher level. There's no unfulfilled need at the state and local level. It's not you know Mississippi's not going to forget to ban arson. New York's not going to forget to ban murder. Mm-hmm. You know these these things were taken care of before there was a constitution. But when they were taken care of at the local level, it gave the people there more say. You know it gave you know maybe in one state they want to punish it so much. In another state, they want to punish it even more, another less. This state wants to try more rehabilitation for certain crimes. Another one says, that doesn't work. Let's just throw them, throw them in jail, throw away the key. All of these things are going to be punished. All of the major crimes are, you know, you don't need the federal government in there. But you might get better results if the people get to try different things. And you'll definitely get the result that the community is governing itself. The community is yeah, yeah. taking responsibility for its own actions. You know, wants to throw a lot of people in jail, they're going to be the ones dealing with that because those people are going to be absent from their community and they're going to be in jail. And is that a good result? Maybe. I mean, people might say, yeah, look, there's less crime now. Other people might say, look, there, there's a lot of gaps in society because we're locking up too many people. These are debates mm-hmm. that we have now, but we shouldn't really be having them at the national level because most crimes shouldn't be national. We should be having them in our, in our states, in our counties, in our towns even. And in that way, you could begin to rebuild this sort of sense of this community governs itself. This is a republic. This is a democracy. This is a place where people are taking responsibility for some of the important things of life. Now it's it's like we get, you, you know, they drop 800 pages in the federal register on a Friday afternoon. That's the law. And everyone says, "How do we, what does that mean? How did we get here? I didn't agree mm-hmm. to that. Nobody agreed to this. Yeah. But it has the force of law. And if I violate it, I go to jail. How, how's, how's that work? Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of federalism in here that isn't, it isn't just about following the rules in the constitution. It's also about why those rules are there. And, you know, what does it, what does it mean for us as a people if we don't follow them? Absolutely. Ditto to all that. So that's it for Randy Barnett. Next time, we're going to end season two and have a season two recap, talk about what we've learned over the past 16 episodes. So should be fun.
Catch us then. Thanks.